We now have a kind of tool where we know in which race John will fit perfectly in and in which race is the best for Marcel. Hey podcast listener, you're listening to the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast. The weekly podcast where we discuss all the issues that cyclists talk about. Whether you're out training, commuting or just riding around, sit down and listen in because we're about to begin. I got something to say. Yo-ho! Welcome to episode 82 of the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, where we believe that only a semi-pro cyclist rides for love and not money. If you stick around to the end, I'll fill you in on the quote from the top of the show and let you know who's talking about John and Marcel. Hey there, semi-pros. My name is Damien Roos. I'm the founder of Semi-Pro Cycling, home of the Semi-Pro Cyclists. And a very quick review to get us underway today. Congratulations, five stars, by Roberto Martins from Brazil. Damien, I am doing this review from Brazil. Congratulations on... On the podcast, which is undoubtedly one of the best I have ever had the opportunity to follow. Excellent content addressing important issues for those passionate about cycling. Bam! Obrigado, Roberto. Thank you very much. And keep repping the semi-pros in South America. And definitely a reminder to you that if you do love the show, please take some time out and drop a review either on iTunes or in Stitcher because five stars makes me keep... Thank you very much. And two articles this week that I have dug up from the interwebs. Super interesting stuff. The first one is from the Globe and Mail, a newspaper article, but it reaches a little bit deeper and it's asking the question, why are elite athletes able to speed up when they see the finish line? Well, it talks about the surge of energy that comes from realizing you're almost finished a difficult task. I don't know for you if this is familiar, but it definitely is to me because the question here is if tired muscles and depleted energy stores are what slow you down during prolonged exercise, then how are you able to speed up at the end when you should be most tired and depleted? The answer seems to lie in our minds. Top-level athletes get closer and closer to their real physiological maximum, says Dr. Samuel Moraka, a fatigue researcher from the University of Kent in Britain, but they never quite reach it. The brain applies the brakes before the heart, lungs, and muscles fail. And there are there are definitely examples of other research when you read through the article that go on to reinforce the theory that the mind can be controlled to benefit performance. What isn't mentioned in this article, though, is the central governor theory proposed by Professor Tim Noakes, which is the hypothesis that within your brain is a controlling mechanism which unconsciously prevents you from overexerting yourself. I won't go into it now. There is a whole show in this stuff. But getting back to the article, this might explain explain why there is a little bit left at the end. Maybe there's actually a lot more left inside you, but it's not till you know it's coming to an end that you give it that one last push. The second article I came across is a study called High Agreement Between Laboratory and field estimates of critical power in cycling. I've got the link in the show notes, but basically the purpose of the study was to investigate the level of agreement between lab-based estimates of critical power and results taken from a novel field test, which this is something that comes up a lot with my athletes. Some prefer the trainer and some definitely hate the trainer. So when it comes down to testing, Is it okay to do tests on the road in replacement to the ones that you do on the trainer? Well, they had 14 
Trained cyclists go through a lab test for CP. It was the MAP test. Then they did a field test for CP that was estimated from three all-out tests performed at an outdoor velodrome over fixed durations of 3, 7, and 12 minutes. And the results were that the mean prediction errors for the lab and the field estimates were 2.2% of CP and 27% of W prime. So the data definitely suggests that employing an all-out field test that lasts 3, 7, or 12 minutes has potential in the estimation of CP, which is definitely good news for those of us that do do testing outside. So hopefully the same is true for the standard 20-minute FTP test and the other power profiling time zones that you can test to get a full picture of your cycling. So the nuts and bolts this week, managing your stress budget by Jesse Kropolenicki. Sorry, Jesse, I butcher names. (laughs) Anyway, Jesse wrote a great article on managing the stress budget and even just introducing the idea of the stress budget to me, and I thought it was that useful. He is a triathlon coach, but I let that slide, and I've gone through his article and put a little bit more into it, but basically all of these ideas are definitely credited to Jesse. I'm just trying to bring them to you and maybe expand them a little bit. But the idea behind the stress budget is to understand all the stress factors in life as a whole and plan them into your training at every level while expanding your ability to handle stress over time. So doing well in cycling is simple. huh? All you have to do is have a huge capacity to handle stress and then Use that capacity on riding by minimizing life stresses. Simple, yes, easy, I'm not so sure. So today we are going to explore, understand and manage your stress budget because it's such an important determining factor in your progress through the sport of cycling. So there are two areas of importance when it comes to the stress budget and the first one is lasting an entire season. Being able to physiologically and mentally perform at your best when you need to throughout an entire season without any burnout or injury. The second one is year-on-year improvement. Only over consistency over year, over year, over year, are you going to get better and reach your potential as a cyclist? It's not going to happen in 12 months. It's not going to happen in two years. So this is the consistency and looking at all of this stress as a whole is going to help you get that consistency. So what is the stress budget as defined by Jesse? He defines it as the maximum amount of stress that can be added into your life without it becoming counterproductive to your success as an athlete. With the consideration of the stress budget in planning, it's easy to continue adding more without understanding the consequences until it's too late. There are definitely many ways that we can add stress into our lives, and I'm sure you are an expert in it, as am I. In a training sense, we can add intensity, volume, racing, team camps, you name it. In life, poor nutrition, poor sleep, extra pressure from work or school, and whether conscious or not, Every small addition has to be looked at as a whole. So what's happening here on a physical level is the disruption of recovery and the supercompensation cycle. And it includes physiological stress of the systems of overtraining rather than overreaching, which overreaching is not bad for us. It's actually what helps us get better. So... When we're talking about physiological stress systems, we're talking about hormone levels being out of whack, abnormal blood work, 
and lack of immunity. It's not the tired legs. The systematic stress is better managed at a macro level or the 20,000 or 30,000 foot level through your annual training program and periodized training blocks. Here is an interesting idea presented by Jesse. Your total stress budget is by and large a function of the prior year's acceptable stress level. Because when you are new to racing, you're feeling everything out, the racing, the training, the logistics of life, the extra time that it takes to clean your bike once every two weeks, maybe a little bit less. But once that year is done, you can start benchmarking and refining your process, including looking at the stressful times during the season and taking those into account when planning an entire season to see what happened. But there's other factors involved. Definitely that is the first step. So looking at your volume and intensity, either TRIMP or TSS, and what you can churn out on a consistent and weekly basis because the optimal here is to be able to sustain this level while being able to contribute to every other area of your life and not burn out or become injured. And Jesse refers to this as sustainable volume, but I like to think of it as semi-pro perfection. Before I go any further though, I want to address a not so tangible area that I believe is extremely important in this equation. That is the mental aspect. While physiological adaptions are one thing if you can't sustain a certain level of workload at work and your approach to cycling pushes you almost every time you get on the bike then you're asking for trouble unless you are consciously going out of your way to rejuvenate your mind so let me give you an example i trained seriously and worked full-time for a couple of years. Boo-hoo, I know everybody out there is probably doing the same, but I just want to explain my situation. My job, it was a sit-down office job that wasn't really very stressful because it wasn't overly challenging. It played to my strengths, and I was there for five years, so I had most things down. So it was easy to maintain and stay on top of the challenges, and I would train in the afternoons and nights after work. And at first, I thought that training was a release, both physically and mentally. You know, I was stuck in the office all day, and I couldn't get out and I wasn't working any part of my body except my typing fingers. Over time, I began to realize that training was not actually a release for me. It was plain hard work. Hard work I definitely valued, but hard work nonetheless. So while my work didn't push me physically or even really mentally, writing challenged my body and my brain. And so to put it in context of the stress budget, if I changed roles or I got a new job, then my cycling definitely would have suffered. I'm 100% sure of it. So it's easy to listen to people that talk about cycling and training as a release but have a really good think about what it does to your brain. Do you find yourself fried mentally after a workout or are you rejuvenated? I'm not just talking about being tired. I'm talking about being that fried that you have to find another way to recharge yourself. Whatever it is, and whether you're an introvert, extrovert, ambivert, whatever, you know yourself better than I do. So I'm not going to give you recommendations, but the only thing is you have to work this out. Okay, so back to physiological stress and planning. There is one element of your planning that you can have a preemptive strike on any stress that's going to happen, and that is the ideal situation, but it's not always going to happen that way. There are times when you get increased responsibility at work or at home, and they involve a sharp increase in your stress, and it means that all other areas have to be reduced. Much like planning your training stress, which you only ever want to increase 5 or 10% at a time, 
because your body won't be able to actually sustain anything greater than that over a very long period of time. So in theory, if your university stress increases by 30%, I don't know how you measure that, but if it does increase by 30%, something is going to give. So you have to lower all other areas of your life. And think of this as insurance rather than a pain in the ass because if you play the long ball, then the training sacrificed will be a drop in the ocean once you get down the road. So there are ways to boost your stress budget and total stress capability and I touched on it briefly regarding knowing how to recharge your mind, but physically, it's pretty straightforward. Well, in theory anyway, you have to stick to the basics. Good nutrition, more or better sleep, massages, mobility work, and To put these in perspective, think of them as an investment in your entire life, not just your cycling. If you do these things right, then you have a greater capacity overall to spend more time on your bike and with your family or friends or whatever you do on Saturday nights. So once you have a grasp on how to expand your stress budget and you've built it up over some years, there is still an element of discipline or at least an understanding of the best way to spend the budget No use putting it towards staying up later or extra life complications because your athletic progress will simply not happen. To illustrate his point, Jesse runs through four athlete examples. If each athlete has the same stress budget capacity, these examples start at the worst example of stress budget management moving towards the best. See if you fit in any of these categories to identify where you are now and then try and see how you can move to the best possible scenario. So athlete one, the athlete with the worst stress budget, typically type A personalities, driven athletes in all aspects of their lives. They have lofty cycling goals and lofty employment and maybe even lofty family responsibilities. I don't know what that is. Maybe they've got 20 children or something. But as a result, these athletes are often working well beyond their available stress budget as they try to cram all of their priorities into their lives. This athlete is systematically burnt out, maybe injured, and certainly lacking long-term progress. Unfortunately, this is the worst case scenario and also the most common. These athletes would be best served to take a good, hard look at the factors pulling on them and determine if any of these can be mitigated because work and family responsibility Responsibilities tend to be unyielding, it is often their training that must be formulated. Damn. Cycling is a young man's sport. Initially, this can be a difficult pill to swallow, but will very likely improve training, racing, and your frame of mind. Athlete 2, very high goals but lacking appropriate level of stress in their training. Actually, under budget, the progress of these athletes is actually being limited by too little training stress. These athletes will struggle to make real long-term progress because of the combination of low training stress levels and a somewhat high level of bad stresses. With significant stress budgets, which are being both under and incorrectly utilized, these athletes would realize greater training and racing performance by considering how they can incorporate greater training stress into their program and possibly cut back. Initially, this can be a difficult pill to swallow, but will very likely improve training, racing, and opposing factors in their lives. 
Athlete 3. So now we're starting to get on the right track. We're starting to really understand the capacity, the good and the bad stresses in our life, but we just haven't nailed it. So they have some training stress and limited life logistical stress, but they underutilize their total budget. These athletes are much more uncommon, but many times can be that shining gem out there that has great potential that no one has realized. These athletes typically do not have children, have low stress jobs, and a great deal of unrealized potential. They are often unaware of the work that's required to make real long-term progress. Together with a good coach, these athletes should consider how to implement a greater amount of training stress into their program as to induce even greater progress. Already having the infrastructure needed to support the necessary restoration, staying within budget should be accomplished with ease. Now, Athlete 4 is the ideal athlete, the one that everybody should be aiming for, but I understand the realities that it's not always possible. With Athlete 4, a large percentage of their stress budget goes towards training and very limited bad stress factors. These athletes hit it perfectly. Excellent nutrition and restoration help to maintain or improve total stress budgets, and these athletes continue to take advantage of that budget. These athletes excel beyond the rest and over the long term makes real quantifiable progress. Were you able to identify yourself in those four athlete types? I would definitely say there are times in your life where you would change from one to another. So knowing maybe where you are now and where you were before could also be of benefit, especially if you were in a better place. Okay, maybe you've got a kid and other commitments now or whatever it is, you're job is more stressful. But that just means that you may be able to transfer some of the stress from one area to another without too much change and then you're cycling benefits. But definitely you have to take in consideration everybody involved in this equation. You can't be too selfish with cycling otherwise it just doesn't work. The trouble that I hope you are beginning to see is that there are certain actions you can take that can really fill your stress budget and reduce your total capacity twice as dangerous. A perfect example of this is training instead of sleeping. Seems quite innocent, doesn't it? But it could be this type of action repeated over and over again that means you do not fulfill your athletic or stress capacity potential. And as a practical reminder, go back and listen to episode 19 on five ways to optimize your life for more riding time. It definitely is one way that you can shove down some of that stress in regards to everyday life activities and spend more time training or doing other things with your newfound capacity. So now you have this information, I urge you to take a step back and have a look at your total stress budget and where you might be adding stress that hampers your progress. And definitely, let me help you work this out. Over the next couple of weeks, I'm offering free 15-minute calls to help you figure out any challenges you have with your cycling, your stress budget, or any other issue. All you have to do is go over to semiprocycling.com forward slash advice and book your spot. I look forward to helping you out and getting over any hurdles that you have right now. All right, the tech hacks and product section, and just a very quick one today. If you're out riding without a decent pump or you're traveling without a floor pump, cut the smooth bit off a valve cap. Screw it back on the valve stem and you can use a service station air compressor without an adapter. A super quick tip that will save you lots of time and hassle 
even keeping it on your bike, which I don't recommend, probably just putting it in your pocket is going to be even easier if you are out in a ride and you need to just top up with an air compressor at a service station. And now let's get to that quote from the top of the show. It's Toen Van Erp, the science guy for Giant Shimano, and seeing that they have been crushing the sprints since last year's tour, it's cool to have some insight into their process. And it's funny how you forget that every team has some system or some gun working for them because Sky are always in the media about marginal gains, I guess because they're crushing the GC. But anyway, check out the clip of what these guys are doing when it comes to recognizing the sprinters and putting their sprinting train together. If we could only have a system like what they're talking about that tells us what races that we are suited towards or not, because it maybe it just tells me to stay in bed every single race day. And that's it. You've been listening to the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast. Remember to head over to semiprocycling.com forward slash advice to book in your free 15-minute coaching call. But till next week, get on your bike and enjoy the pain cave or the hurt box, whichever one you're into. What we are doing is we put... Uh the data of a sprint or we put it in a movie so we can see what's happening and what, what moment and we can really see what's going wrong or right. Every rider has his own important role in sprint training. If everybody follows and executes the plan, then that's the key to success. I just came back from the high altitude training camp, which I uh, planned for Marcel and John. Normally, uh, an altitude training camp is endurance-based, but with the information I got from Tone, we also implemented the sprint training on high altitude. In December, January, it was already a plan in the team to start with both John and Marcel in the Tour de France, and yeah, we know the differences but we really want to have it uh, on paper so we did a research with uh, the University of Maastricht and we looked to all the sprints of John and Marcel and compared them together and, and see what the difference really are uh, between uh, those two sprints. And some really good results uh, came from that uh, research and uh, one was uh, that we now have a a kind of tool where we know in which race John will fit perfectly in and in which race is the best for uh, Marcel. To design a sprint way this way is better because um, with the extra information we can make the, the luck factor in the sprint smaller and it's really the small difference can make the difference between a one race or a lost race so uh, it's really important uh, to uh, improve the sprint rate. It's a work of years to come to a level that we are now. And uh, in the past, maybe uh, it was more based on experience and, 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 and luck. And now we are more and more um, implement science in our sprint training.